Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for this time. God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would encourage us as we consider the words that are written on the pages of our Bibles. God, that we would recognize that these words come from you, that these words are indeed your word. And God, that in them, we are given the gift of life, the opportunity to know you and to be saved from our sin. God, I pray and ask that you would help us to hear your word clearly, that you would help us to apply your word to our lives. And God, that you would give us the grace that we need to just live in light of your word, to leave here changed and to be seeking to honor you in all that we say and do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. Today we find ourselves getting close to the end of Galatians. We find ourselves in Galatians 5, and there's a shift that begins to take place in Galatians. Galatians, he's been laying this theological understanding of the Gospel again and again, pointing back to the Gospel of Jesus, and by Gospel... I mean the truth that we are all sinners, that we are that the wages of sin is death, the just payment or penalty for sin is death, and that that sin has separated us from a holy and just God, and that God came in the flesh, He sent His Son Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, so that we might be forgiven. And that He was raised on the third day. That's the essence of the Gospel, that He defeated sin and death, and that by faith in Him, trust in Him, leaning on Him, we might be forgiven. That in some sense, it's like a courtroom where we were declared guilty, but Jesus came in and took the punishment that we rightly deserved. So Paul, in writing to the Galatian believers in this region of Galatia, he's been pointing back to the Gospel again and again. And he's doing so because there's, there's individuals within the churches in Galatia who have perverted the Gospel. They've changed the Gospel. And they're saying, yes, it's good that Jesus died, but you also need to do these things. You need to live a holy life by doing these things. Specifically, we see circumcision being one of the issues. You need to be circumcised. Why circumcision? Because it was an Old Testament commandment that... that indicated that the people were part of the covenant of God, the covenant family of God, and that they were seeking to be obedient to God, keeping the Old Testament law. So in a sense, what these people were saying, these false teachers were saying, was that you need to not only accept Jesus, but you need to obey all that is written in the law of God. And I don't know about you, but I fall so very short of that. And every one of us, when we examine ourselves rightly, should realize that we fall short of that. That's why we need grace. So Paul's been laying that foundation, and now in chapter 5, he begins to point forward to how we might apply this, these things, how we might live in light of the Gospel in very real and practical ways. And in the upcoming weeks, we'll look at the fruit of the Spirit. We see this this list of fruits of the Spirit's working in our lives. So what we're about to partake on or look on is the the work of the Spirit in our lives. And we begin to see that even in our section today. So with all that in mind, let's look at our text this morning. We're going to be looking at Galatians 5, verses 1-12. through If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 
Paul writes, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Again, I testify to every man who receives circumcision, he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of his word this morning. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not going to lie, this is a tough text. And it's tough for a couple of reasons. Number one, because it is so very graphic. So this text is rated R in many respects. It's a very, very graphic text that we have here. And I will try to explain this well, while also not not seeking to just be graphic for the sake of showmanship, but also really expressing what Paul is saying here. Paul's using some pretty strong graphic language. The other reason this text is somewhat difficult is there are individuals who would say that this text points to a couple of things. Number one, that you can lose your salvation, which is not at all true, not something that Paul teaches, but also that this text seems so contrary to the book of James. In James, you have this idea that, that good works accompany salvation. And here in Galatians, you have this idea that, that you're not saved by good works. And some would say these two texts run in conflict with one another. So in order to explain that, I want you to just consider that the focus of Galatians and the focus of James, though they're teaching the same truth, they're coming at it from two different sides or two different angles, if you will. In other words, Galatians is saying good works do not cause someone to be saved. Good works don't cause someone to be saved. And it's yelling that and saying, but then saying, but salvation does result in good works. So good works don't cause you to be saved, but salvation does result in good works. And James is saying, coming at it from the other end of the spectrum, James is saying salvation results in good works, but good works don't cause someone to be saved. So they're, they're coming at this, both saying good works don't cause you to be saved, but salvation will result in good works. Salvation changes your life. Salvation has an outcome, an effect in your life, is what we see here in Galatians and in James. So we look at our text this morning. We're going to look at 
continue to look at verses 1 through 12, but as we do so, I want to consider our points from last week by way of review. We had three points last week. We had number one, that the gospel of grace brings freedom. That is the gospel of grace, trust in Christ, unmerited favor that sets us free. That the gospel of grace bears fruit, that it has an effect in our lives. It ultimately changes us and grows us and and causes us to live in a way that glorifies God. And that the gospel of grace begets unity. That it causes unity within the church. That there's a certain division. That when you preach the gospel of grace, that there are some who will be hostile to it. But it unites those who accept it, who receive it, who trust in Jesus. That we are united in Him. So as we look at today's text, we see that verse 1 of chapter 5 is a bit of a transition. In other words, it goes both with last week's message and this week's message because it connects the two. In fact, in some sense, verse 1 is the crescendo of this entire letter. In verse 1, Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. What he's saying is, stand firm in what? In the grace of God. Don't become enslaved to trying to keep the law. That if you think you can live in such a way that you're going to earn God's favor, you only become a slave. And what Paul has been saying throughout this whole letter is, behold the grace of God. Look upon the grace of God. And that is indeed what he's saying here in verse 1. And then as we look at verses 2-12, through 12, we're actually going to use the same outline, the same three points that we saw last week, because Paul is reiterating or reinforcing the very same ideas that he did in chapter 4, verses 12-31. through 31. So without further delay, the first point in our sermon outline is, number one, the gospel of grace brings freedom. The gospel of grace brings freedom. Look at verses 2-4 through 4 with me. Paul says this. He says, behold. In other words, what he's saying is, mark my words. Listen up, people, is what he's saying. Behold, I, Paul, say to you. He's saying, listen to what I am about to say. This is important. If, and this is not a definite, but if you receive circumcision. And he's saying this, by saying, if you receive circumcision as a means of justification, and we'll see that more clearly in a second, but if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. That if you are circumcised, and you believe that circumcision is going to save you, then Christ will be of no benefit. And this is, you could put almost any, you could put anything in here. If you receive, we don't really struggle with this much. There aren't many people who are coming in here going, I'd like to become a member of Harmony Bible Church. And I say, okay, well, why would you like to become a member? And they say, well, because I was circumcised. Right? There aren't many people who say that. Or I say, well, they say, well, because I'm a Christian. Well, how, do I know, how do I know you're a Christian? Well, I was circumcised. Right? But you do have people say, well, but I, because I was baptized. How, how do I know you're a Christian? Well, because I was baptized. Or how do I know you're a Christian? Well, because I've always gone to church. Or my, I, my, I was raised as a, as a Christian in a Christian home. Or I went to Sunday school. Or I have all the Sunday school pins. So long, the trail of, of pins is so long I could trip over them. Right? I have those. I have like, I don't know how many years I went. Right? So you, 
the point is, these things don't save you. It's not about outward conformity. So Paul says, if you receive circumcision as a means of justification, of thinking that that gives you right standing before God, Christ will be of no benefit to you. He goes on and he clarifies even further. He says, and I testify again, every man, that is everyone who receives circumcision, everyone who receives circumcision, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law and never stumble is this point. You're under obligation to keep the entire law, all of the law, and never stumble. In other words, what Paul is saying is, if you think that you can be saved by keeping the law, then you better keep every jot, every tittle of it. And never stumble at any point. Which is ludicrous. We need not look further than the Ten Commandments to see that we do not keep the law. The Ten Commandments serves as a good summary of the law. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make for, make for themselves an idol. All of these commandments point to thou shalt love the, thou shalt not um, uh, covet after their neighbor's stuff. You shall not covet after your, neighbor, your neighbor's wife. Right? All these things, all these commands that are given to us, they're given as a summary of the law. And even that can be summed up even further by saying you shall love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor as yourself. None of us can say that we've kept these commands. How many of us have ever lied or stolen or looked with lust? Every one of those things is a violation of God's law. James 2 verses 10-11 through reinforces this idea that we're all transgressors, and that if you stumble at one point, you break the entire law. And it says this, For whoever keeps the whole law, and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. It's like a chain. That if one link is weak, one link is broken, then the chain will not hold you up. So for somebody who says, I'm a good person, I've done all these good things, and the, the question is not, has the good outweighed the bad? The question is, have you ever done anything ever bad at all? And the answer is, yes, regardless of how good you are. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So in modern terms, the way this looks is somebody will come, sometimes come and say, you know, I, I don't really belong here. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the life that I've lived. And I don't know the life that some people have lived when they, when they walk in these doors. I don't know the sins that they've committed. But I'll tell you this. I may have lived a wonderful, clean life, which I didn't, by the way, as evidenced last week by the painter's comments when he said that he never expected me to be the pastor here, that I may have lived a clean and wonderful life, but if I've stumbled at one point, that makes me a transgressor, just like the guy who transgressed over and over again. Now, continuing in verse 4, Paul uses this very pointed and purposeful language. He says this. Again, it's pretty graphic here. He says, you have been severed. You've been cut off 
from Christ. You've been separated from Christ. Now, in order to understand this, we need to understand what Paul is talking about. He's talking about circumcision. He's talking about these Judaizers who are coming in and going, yes, it's good, this whole Jesus thing, that's great, but in order to be truly saved, Acts 15, we read this, they came to the to the elders in Jerusalem, they said, in order to be truly saved, what you really need to do is you also need to keep the law. You also need to be circumcised. So what is circumcision is the question. Well, it's a cutting off of the foreskin, and it's meant to point to removal of sin, a cutting off, a separating of oneself from sin. He says, and you have been severed, you've been cut off from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. If you read Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, we get a clear, pretty clear indication of what circumcision was really all about. It says this, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The point of circumcision was not that somehow God was pleased by cutting off a piece of skin. The point of circumcision was that it was meant to indicate something greater happening in somebody's life. It was meant to point to a changed heart, a removal of sin from their life by the grace of God. And God says, I don't want you to just be circumcised outwardly. I want your heart to be circumcised. It's a a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. God warned His people again and again. This isn't what I'm talking about, folks, is what He said. He says, it's not about outward acts. In fact, God said again and again, I'm tired of your festivals. I'm tired of your sacrifices. Not because the festivals and the sacrifices were bad, but because there was no heart behind them. There was no change of heart. So in the same way, he says, I'm tired of this circumcision that happens outwardly, but it isn't a circumcision of the heart. See that same thing in Jeremiah 4.4. He says, circumcise yourself to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Your heart is what needs to change. And in the same way, while these Judaizers were coming and saying, you need to keep the law, Paul's saying, it's not about this outward act. It's not about that at all. And if you're trusting in this act, then you're going to be damned. This is very real for us, folks. Again, not in circumcision, but in things like baptism and things like tithing or church attendance, maybe even serving. I've been a deacon. I've been a deacon since I was 30 years old and I served in the church. It's an outward act that hopefully shows an inward change that God has changed your heart. And therefore, you're seeking to live a life of obedience to Him because of what He has done for you inwardly. Not because you're seeking to please Him. I've said this before when I've talked about tithing or I've talked about offering. If you put money in the plate because you thought that somehow you were going to please God, that it was going to be pleasing to God, and you were going to earn God's favor, then I invite you after the service to come up and take it back. God's not pleased with that. We're called, 
Instead, to live in light of what God has done for us and honor Him with our lives in gratitude and by His grace. So he says, you've been severed from Christ. You've been cut off. You who are seeking to be justified by the law. And he goes on and he says, you have fallen from grace. He says, you know what's fallen away? You know what's fallen away? It's not skin that's fallen away. I'll tell you what's fallen away. You're the one who's fallen away. You have fallen from grace. So there's a very clear play on words here. You've been severed from Christ. You've fallen from grace. I'll show you what's being removed. If you receive circumcision as a means of justification, you're the one who's being cut off. Now I want to be careful here. Because as I mentioned earlier, some have used this verse to argue that you can lose your salvation. That's not at all what Paul is saying. Nor do I want you to think that it's what I am saying. Paul's point is simple. If you trust in anything other than Christ for salvation, you will be damned. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. I know that we looked at Ephesians 2, uh, 1-9 last week, but it bears repeating, so I'm going I'm to read it again. Ephesians 2, verses 1-9, through he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And he says, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He says, we were dead, we were children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love, with which He loved us. Who's the active player in this verse? God, because of what He has done. His love, His rich mercy, even when we were dead. Dead people... Do not get up and walk an aisle, folks. If you are dead in your sins, it is only by the grace of God that you are saved. Even when we were dead in our transgressions and and sins, He made us together, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And He goes on in verse 8 and says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God not as a result of works. You see, Christ's work on the cross is sufficient for salvation. So the good news of the Gospel is not Christ plus good works equals salvation. It's not even Christ plus baptism equals salvation. Or Christ plus church membership. Or Christ plus tithing. Or Christ plus anything else. Christ's work on the cross is sufficient. As I said, Paul's point is simple. He says, if you trust in anything other than Christ for salvation, you will be damned. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And he is not arguing that anyone can lose their salvation. We don't have time to go over all these verses. Well, we probably do. Because I could, I mean, I could probably just keep preaching and you could just leave when you got tired. But instead of doing that, I'm not going to try to bore you by keeping you here forever. So I'm not going to go over all these verses, but the point is you can't lose your salvation. That's clear in Scripture. And you can write these down if you want. John 6, 39-40. He says, those whom the Father gives me, he says, I don't lose them. 
I will hold them and I will raise them up on the last day. John 10, 27 through 28. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me and I'll give, I give eternal life to them and they never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Or 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, a verse we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. Right? That God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And that through the power of the gospel, you've been given an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It's reserved. It's protected by God. Ready to be revealed in the last time. Or Philippians 1.6 That he who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion. So Paul's not saying that salvation can be lost. Scripture is clear. You didn't earn it, and you can't lose it. However, there is a very clear warning in this passage. The warning is, examine yourselves to see what you are trusting in. For one cannot trust both works of the law and Christ. You can't trust in both. So Paul is saying that true freedom can only be found in Christ and in Christ alone. Because the law was never meant to justify. And to use the law in that way only brings about bondage. The law was meant to show us of our need for a Savior. The law was meant to constrain us. And the law was meant in some way to provoke us or to stir up in us the, the, the fact that we are sinners and to provoke sin in us so that, we would even, so that we would see our need even more clearly. It is the Gospel of grace that brings freedom. Not good works, not righteous living. So having seen, number one, the gospel of grace brings freedom, let's consider point number two. The gospel of grace bears fruit. The gospel of grace bears fruit. Look at verses five and six. For we, through the Spirit, in other words, God's working in us, God's working in us and through us, by faith, that by trusting in Him, leaning on Him, we, through God's work in us, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. In other other words, we're trusting in God, living in light of eternity. We're waiting for that righteousness to be fully realized. Why? Because for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. I've said many times, I have sat by a number of hospital beds and watched people die. And uh, nobody has said to me, you know, I wish I'd had more cars. I wish I'd made more money, I wish I'd built a bigger house at the end of their life. Those are not people's thoughts. You know what? It's never, I've never had anybody say, boy, I'm glad I was circumcised. Uh, nobody on their deathbed has ever said that. Or I've never had anybody say, oh, I wish I was circumcised. It's never come up, folks, in conversation. Because we're waiting for the hope of righteousness. We're living in light of eternity, says Paul. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, circumcision and uncircumcision, it means nothing. At the end of the day, it's not about that. Neither act of outward conformity means anything. So he's not just saying, you know, those of you who want to see everybody circumcised, you're all wrong. He's also saying, those of you, so not just those of you who trust in circumcision, but those of you who are proud that you weren't circumcised, folks, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean that responses or that obedience isn't important. Because we know 
that giving is important. It's commanded by God. We know that church attendance is important. Don't forsake the assembly, right? We're called to do these things. But we're called to do them as responses to the gospel. At the end of the day, when we compare those things to the gospel, they're meaningless. They only come as a response. And circumcision was meant to be a response to what God was doing in the people's lives. It was meant to be a response to God's gracious work in their lives, the, the Jewish people's lives. And Paul says the same is true even today. True faith that is lived out by the power of the Spirit produces love for God and love for others. He goes and he says, for circumcision and uncircumcision, they don't mean anything, they never did, but faith working through love, that means something. Circumcision was never meant to please God in and of itself, but it was a response to what God had done in the people's lives. And God said, I'm tired of these outward acts of obedience. Because true faith is lived out in the power of the Spirit, power in people's lives that produces love for God and love for others. In other words, genuine faith results in good works that are motivated by love. That's why we're told again and again that how, what, how is the law fulfilled? Well, the law is summed up and fulfilled in loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. First John 4, John writes this. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only Son His only begotten Son, into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And then he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then he goes on and says, We love, why? Because He first loved us. And if someone says, I love God and he hates his brother, he says, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen, whom he has not seen. And the point of that is also this. The opposite of that is true. That if you love God whom you have not seen, the natural response is to love your brother whom you have seen. That's why he says, and this commandment we have from him also, that the one who loves God should love his brother. That the natural response to God working in our life is a love for Him which manifests itself in love for others. So faith is not void of works. It's just the opposite. Faith produces works. It bears fruit. And that's where we have this supposed contrast between Galatians and James. But Galatians is saying the very same thing. That Faith, genuine faith, that salvation, that God's grace in our lives produces fruit. Paul would agree with James who said, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. 
But you may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, you believe that God is one, so you have this view that God is one. You do well. Well, the demons also believe and shudder. shudder. The demons believe truth too. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? You see, James understood as did Paul, that genuine faith bears fruit. So having seen that the gospel of grace brings freedom and the gospel of grace brings fruit, bears fruit, now let's consider our fourth point. The gospel of grace begets unity. The gospel of grace results in unity. Look at verses 7-12. through 12. He says, you were running well. You were running. You were, you were persevering. Who hindered you? Who got in your way? Who dragged you down from obeying? Again, there's this idea of obedience. One of the things that Bill said to me last week, he said, I, as I was listening to your message last week, I was afraid that you were merely saying that all we need to, that we can, there's nothing we can contribute to our sanctification. That all we can do is just pray for grace, pray for the grace of God to, to get me to Sunday school. Well, no, you've got to set your alarm, you've got to get up, and you've got to run. But it's only by the grace of God that you're going to do that. So Paul says, he says, I thank God that I worked harder than all of them. He's talking about the other apostles. I worked hard. And then he says, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. He says, you were running well. You were persevering. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion didn't come from him who called you. It didn't come from God. Instead, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. You put a little bit of leaven in there and the whole... All of the dough is affected by it. He says this little bit of false teaching in the churches in Galatia, it's spread and it's dangerous. And you need to cut it out. Then he says, however, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. I have confidence that you're going to persevere in this. Why? Because God's grace is is in your lives. And the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. I don't even know who he is, but I know that God does. And I know that he is going to stand before God one day. And he says, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. If I preach circumcision, then I'll remove the stumbling block of the cross. But I don't preach circumcision. That's why I'm persecuted, says Paul. He says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to remove the stumbling block of the cross. And we need to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. It would be very easy for us to appeal to men. And I'm telling you, the best way to appeal to men, or one of the best ways, is not just by offering cheap grace. God died so you can do whatever you want. That's one of the ways we appeal to men. But one of the other ways you appeal to men and to the world is by removing the stumbling block of the cross. And part of that is saying, yes, this Jesus thing, yeah, yeah, Jesus died, but you need to work hard at your salvation. You need to earn your salvation. And as crazy as that sounds to us as believers, that appeals to the world. Because the predominant view in our culture especially is, well, if my good works outweigh my bad, then I'll go to heaven. That is so very sad, folks. That is not at all what Scripture teaches. That if you've got one sin, 
ever committed at all, then you're a transgressor of the law. And I assure you, you do, as do I, that we all stand guilty before God. And Paul says, I'm not going to remove that stumbling block of the cross. He says, instead, I wish that those who are troubling you by this idea that you can be saved by your own human effort by works, I wish that they would even mutilate themselves. That word means cut off or emasculate or castrate. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you know what? They want you to be circumcised. You know what? I wish they would cut it off. Be done with it. He says they should castrate themselves if they are so bent on circumcision. Furthermore, he's saying, you're the one who needs to cast them off. You need to cut them out of the fellowship. His point is, they're not of you. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So be careful. Paul is pleading with the Galatian believers to hold fast to the truth of the Gospel. You know, I'm certain that the Galatian believers, that those who genuinely trusted in Christ, that they wanted to honor God with their lives, as I'm sure that most of you do. That they, without a doubt, they wanted to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And it was likely that that's the reason that some of these Judaizers were able to gain ground in the church. You want to please God? I'll tell you how you please God. You just follow this simple formula. Do these things, and you'll please God. You'll bear fruit. The trouble is that adding to the gospel isn't the way to bear fruit. You can't add to the gospel of Christ and say, Christ did this for you, now you need to do these things to please God. That ultimately, we are saved by grace and grace alone. But when we are saved, when we understand the true gospel, when we hold fast to the gospel, when we abide in the vine, that that does naturally produce fruit. So if you're, produ- if you're trying to produce fruit in and of yourselves to be pleasing to God, it won't happen. But if you let yourself go and you realize that you need the grace of God and you cast yourself upon the grace of God and you let God change you, let Him give you a new heart, circumcise your heart, not be outwardly circumcised, then fruit will be born in your life that it will produce lasting change. Thus Paul is saying, don't tolerate this false teaching within the church. Instead, be united in the truth. So by way of review, we've seen that the gospel of grace brings freedom. The gospel of grace bears fruit and that the gospel of grace begets unity. It brings unity within the body of true believers where we're united in Christ and united together. So the question is this, so how do we as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically, apply all of this to our lives? How do we take this text and then apply it? Well, number one, we need to stand firm in the truth of the Gospel. And I know that sounds like the same thing I say every week, but we need to stand firm in the truth of the Gospel. If you find yourself thinking, wow, you know, I'm a good person, I'm doing pretty good things, then you better be careful. Instead, we should see ourselves, especially as we grow in Christ, we should see ourselves at more and more, we should see our sin for what it is. And we should become more and more aware of sin in our lives. 
We stand firm in the Gospel. We recognize that we're not saved by our own human efforts, but instead by what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then, and only then can we... So that's point number one. And then, and only then can we... Number two, let the Gospel produce in us real and lasting change. It's only when we stand firm in the Gospel can the Gospel produce in us real and lasting change. A circumcision of the heart, not outward conformity. And you know, we're good at outward conformity, folks. Very good. It's very easy to just go through the motions and never have a heart change. I mentioned a few weeks ago a man who called me. His dad was a pastor. He'd served as a deacon. He'd served as a trustee in the church. And he called me and said, called me at school. I was in Bible college. And he said, "Uh, Jason, you're not going to believe this. I became a Christian today. I received Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm following Him. I'm trusting in Him alone. And I said, praise God for that. And he said, you're the first person that said that. I called my dad. My dad said, oh, come on. You've always been a believer. He says, I called this other person. They said, no, you've al- no, no, you've always been a believer. That is so scary, folks. He said, it's all been outward conformity. I've just been doing these things. I've, I haven't trusted in Christ. I've trusted in these things. I'm accountable to God for what I say to you. And I pray that every one of you doesn't live a life of outward conformity, but instead you trust God who can save you. For you cannot save yourself. So you need to stand firm in the Gospel. We need to. And then we need to let the Gospel produce in us real and lasting change. And that change will be real. It will be lasting. Yes, you will go to church. Yes, you will love your brother. Yes, you will love your wife when she's unlovable. Yes, you will love your husband when he's unlovable. Yes, you will give to the glory of God. And you will share the Gospel with your neighbor. But not because you're trying to earn anything, but because God has done a mighty and awesome work in your life. So as we stand firm in the Gospel and let the Gospel produce in us real and lasting fruit, then thirdly, the way we apply this is we need to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And we need to throw off, we need to cast off anything that hinders us. See, the problem, folks, is that we get this backwards. Human wisdom says, Run with endurance the race. Live this life. And live this life producing change, doing good, going to church. And the Gospel says, stand firm in the grace of God. Behold the grace of God. And when you do that, that will produce real and lasting change. And when that happens, then you can run with endurance. Throwing off anything that hinders us. 